BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we are talking to Jim Shudo, who you know from CNN, uh, both as a uh, uh, one of one of the channel's top reporters, but also, to, are, is it okay to call you like an on air on air celebrity? That's kind of diminishing, isn't it, Jim? But you're uh, you're a major on air presence on the on the. I, I wouldn't say celebrity, but but yes, I, I am lucky to be partnered with Poppy Harlow, uh, anchoring our nine to eleven show in the morning, um, and it's uh, in addition to being chief national security correspondent. So. In many ways, my dream job, get, get to interview folks live on the air, but also keep up uh, my reporting chops. You know, we're gonna, we are going to, for our listeners, we're going to talk about a new book uh, Jim has out called Shadow War, um, and we're going to get to what that book is about in a moment. But before I do uh, other intros and, and kind of a, our ad at, at the front, how do you have time to write a book? So I... Figured out a way to squeeze it into life, and basically, I just I did the math. I, I I embarked on this project at the end of 2017. My publisher Harper Collins and my editor said we'd like to see the manuscript by July. So I said, okay, I got eight months, eighty thousand words in a book of about three hundred pages, ten thousand words a month, twenty five hundred words a week, and I just found if I kept to that schedule. Uh, it becomes more digestible. So if you have, you know, if you're taking the train from New York to D.C., you got two and a half hours of uninterrupted time. You, you could bang out a few hundred words. Uh, I would, I have the benefit of having a patient wife, so I could run down a weekend and bang out a thousand words in a couple of hours there. A lot of the reporting I had done prior, uh, and then a lot of the interviews I was doing concurrent with writing the book, so I would do an interview, with, say, with a Jim Clapper, uh, and plug it in as I went along. Right. And, and then also just the way the way I told the stories, like each chapter tells the story of an individual front in this war. For instance, in March of last year, I went on a ride on a nuclear submarine under the Arctic, and just kept good notes up while I was there, and and wrote most of the story on my way back from there. Um, and, and as you're telling a kind of digestible story, I just found it easier to get those words down on paper. You, you tell all the characters you met, met and the sequence of events you witnessed while you were there, and that just made it more doable for me. Now, how much of the reporting was reporting that you had done sort of in the course of your national security reporting at CNN? So, uh, a lot of it, um, not all of it, uh, and, and some of the reporting I did as chief national security correspondent helped give me the picture of the shadow war because I found myself in a series of assignments, say, to the front lines of the battle in Ukraine or on a, on a spy plane over, the, over China's manufactured islands in the South China Sea or on a nuclear submarine under the Arctic. And those dots helped form the picture that I connected for the book because what, what I came to see was that these individual fronts, that we tend to look at in isolation, 
are part of a bigger picture and part of a bigger strategy that China and Russia are pursuing here, that they are not in isolation, that, that the way Russia and China, for instance, are trying to catch up to our submarine forces, are, are, that is one front broader strategy, or that territorial acquisition in Europe, in Ukraine, or in Asia, in the South China Sea, again, another front, um, that what's happening in space now with both Russia and China deploying uh, space weapons that I saw as I traveled around U.S. Space Command, um, again, are another front in a broader sh shadow war. So, so you know, the book came to me as I was dropping into each of these fronts and realizing, hey, this is part of a broader war here, and we have to see it as part of a broader war. And increasingly, that's the way military commanders, intelligence officials, and others are seeing this as well. So I saw this as a something that I felt duty-bound to make my fellow citizens aware of. Let me let me uh, do a little housekeeping here. I want to introduce uh, Allegra Kirkland, who is a reporter on staff at uh, no, you were a reporter. I'm sorry, I'm losing. Uh, Allegra was was recently promoted to editor here at 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 TPM, so she's going to be joining us uh, on this episode. Hello, Allegra. Hey, happy to be here. Nice to meet you, Jim. Hello, Allegra. And then we also have a little uh, housekeeping. A word from our sponsor. Uh, the climate is warming up. The political climate is boiling over. Yep, it's sure getting hot out there. But Grady's Cold Brew can help you cool things down this summer. Order online and get their famous New Orleans style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a buck a cup. Grady's will end up saving you a ton of money, but also a ton of time. No need to wait in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from your fridge. Already cold and completely customizable for your perfect cup. Grady's cold brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code T PM. So you don't you don't do those when you're doing when you're hosting your show at, at CNN. No live reads. No, we don't. We, we don't. We do. We do go to commercial break, but we don't. We don't read the ads. Uh, I did get thirsty for some some cold coffee as you were, as you were. Oh, that's good. Doing. That's good. This is, clearly yeah. it's a it's a it is a a, a well put together um, well put together spot. Let me ask you a, a brief trivia. Do you remember when we met? I do absolutely. I trust me. I think about it all the time. We we at the George Polk Award. Yeah, at right? that panel. A good ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah I'll tell you, it's, it's twelve years ago. I think it's even longer. Or, yeah, but at least ten years ago, and and that was so. In addition to just being sort of like you know. Uh, Jim Josh personal trivia. Now you got that award, for, if I'm remembering right, for reporting on Myanmar, right? That's right. I snuck into Myanmar during the what what came to be known as the Saffron Revolution. If you remember, mm -hmm. with the monks playing a central role in in rebelling, in effect, uh, against uh, the 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 junta at the time, and, and you know, enormous violence followed. And of course, they were not handing out journalist visas, so I snuck across the border, and they confiscated our camera so i ended up shooting on on my cell phone back at a time pre-iphone when your cell phone video was pretty crappy right right but that's the tool we had so we used it and that worked for us at the time now at that point you i think you were with abc news and yep. you were sort of you know kind of 
I guess, foreign affairs reporter kind of in the field in different parts of the world. And now, uh, you you know, a big part of what you do is on air. And, and, and I would think that the kind of reporting you do is just is different in some ways, given given your role in the organization and the fact that you, you know, you have regular on air responsibilities. Give us a sense. What's the compare the two things as a working journalist? Sure. At the time, I was senior foreign correspondent for ABC based in London, uh, but was kind of like a fireman. Right. I mean, when when the bell rang, you got the call, you hopped on a plane. And that took me at times to took me at the time to Myanmar to sneak in there. Uh, I'm, I, similarly, I went to Zimbabwe and walked across the border in Zimbabwe there after Robert Mugabe, Mugabe stole an election. Uh, but spent the biggest chunk of my time covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, multiple multiple embeds, uh, and I loved it. And I, you know, for a good 15, 20 years of my life, that that was what I did. I was a foreign correspondent based in London covering the world. I'd previously been based in Asia covering Asia principally and loving it and that was that was my dream job and and um and it's really part of the reason I, I came to see the outlines of the shadow war because I was covering Russia and China so much in the midst of that and seeing, hey wait a second, something's going on here in the way that they're contesting the US. Uh, I mean in terms of the in terms of the, the nature of the job, over time I migrated more behind the anchor desk. Uh, which is also fun. And to be clear, I still get in the field. I was I was out in Hanoi for the nuclear summit. I, I still get out in the field as often as I can and still cover the agencies involved, the, the Defense Department, the intelligence agencies, uh, the State Department. Um, but it's different. You know, it's, it's, you know, over time, you grow. I, I've always thought that, and I still think that, you know, the age of the one-dimensional anchor is over, that, you know, to, to be... A qualified anchor. Um, I still got to do the reporting work, um, and, and I still do that. I'm on the road less, but I'm still chasing down those stories as best I can, even though I, even though I, I got a show now as well. Let me, let me ask you this, and then I want to I want to uh, bring Allegra in here. One of you talk about China and Russia here as as not 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 to the exclusion of other players, but those are the two big players. Um, but it seems to me that in many ways, what China is doing is what rising great powers do. They don't, you know, they're, they're, there's not military parity yet, but, um, you know, sort of uh, territorial movements, uh, some uh, stealing of, of intellectual property, corporate espionage, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas with Russia, you seem to have something qualitatively different, which is a, a declining power that has national pretensions far above what it can currently manage economically and militarily. And so you have this different kind of asymmetric kind of uh, I don't want to get into what's rule breaking and what's not there you know there's there isn't a, a, a big body of rules for the for uh, international affairs but things that at least break a lot of international norms between great powers to kind of put us 
off our game and kind of throw everybody off our game to kind of allow them more freedom of maneuver in a world where they are not as powerful as they were for most of the 20th century. Walk us through that difference. Is that a, is that a, a, a reasonable critique of the, of, of the differences between these two powers and how they're both dealing with the U.S.? Absolutely not. It's right on. You gotta, you gotta, and each dangerous in his, in its own way. Uh, so, so, so Russia, the declining power, wants to retain and regain uh, as much as it can of of what it sees as its rightful uh, position and lost position as as a world power to contend with. Um, China uh, seeking to surpass the U.S. Although both of them have a historical grounding for this, where China China believes it is regaining its rightful place as a world superpower stolen away in the 19th century, right, uh, by Western powers interfering. Russia doesn't go back that far. It goes back just to 1991, restoring its rightful place after the collapse of the Soviet Union and it, it being taken advantage of. So, so both of them see themselves being victimized, China going back a century and a half, Russia going back just a couple of decades, um, and with different levels of influence today, uh, in that China has a truly world-beating economy and other enormous advantages. Russia, the, 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 with an economy the size of a single U.S. state, uh, probably around the size of Texas, so nothing of the economic might to match, but but a, but a very formidable military. So. Yes, uh, you know, a, a rising power, a Thucydides trap, right, of how does a rising power accommodate and compete with, with an existing power. And then Russia, the declining power, kind of punching and, and sticking its thumb, thumb in our eye on the way down. Um, when I ask U.S. intelligence officials, military commanders to say, okay, who's more dangerous, given those differences and similarities, they'll tend to say Russia more dangerous and aggressive in the short term, but China the more formidable threat in the medium to long term in terms of achieving its aim of surpassing the U.S. Well, one, one more kind of question I wanted to... Uh, from your reporting, we all know that Russia still has a big nuclear arsenal, and in some ways that is the sort of you know the entire thing. They have a big nuclear arsenal, and that every you know everything sort of falls from that. Where do U.S. military leaders, the people who keep tabs on these things, how do they rate Russia now as a conventional military force? So the one, and I have a whole chapter on this, is, is submarine warfare. The, the one thing that Russia did not abandon post-fall of the Soviet Union what was its submarine forces. It led its Navy, and if you see Russia's, Russia's lone carrier kind of chugging around and spewing smoke as it shows up here and there, it's very visible. Uh, let its Navy go into to disrepair, let its ground forces, um, and they tried to pump some money back in there, but, but its sub-forces, it never really let fall behind entirely and since then, in the last couple of years, have have deployed two new classes of attack submarine and, and uh, ballistic missile submarine that are not quite on a par with the U.S., but very formidable. And at the same time, they've made a calculation that, listen, we can't contest with carriers and elsewhere, but we can in submarine warfare. 
And actually, this is the, the weapon of the present and future. This is really where the battles are going to be fought and won or lost. So that's the right way to direct our resources. And China, China has made a similar calculation. Yes, it has one carrier, but they've also concluded we can't contest with the U.S. in carrier groups. But by the way, we think that's the weapon of the past. Subs are the weapon of the present and the future. And China has deployed some very capable, quieter submarines as well. So that's it. that is one of the fronts of the shadow war uh, where you're going to have this global power competition won and lost and that you're going to see the power of the, of the carrier, et cetera, recede. Um, and China and Russia have made enormous progress in, in that category. So not only have they calculated they can't compete on the other fronts, they can with subs, but also that that is the front to compete on because that's the weapon of the present and the future. Got it. Allegra? My question is also sort of about Russia's role in the shadow war. A lot of their activities were pulled out of the shadows during and after the 2016 election. Um, you know, thanks to Robert Mueller's probe, we know about things like their social media manipulation efforts. We know about their attempts to hack election infrastructure. We know about the sort of like Maria Butina style influence operations. So I guess I'm wondering from your reporting, if you've seen the Russian government sort of adjusting to that reality, the fact that a lot of their kind of tactics have been exposed. One of their great successes, I would say, is that they've kind of just provoked this uncertainty and paranoia that people are now have this, you know, maybe am I talking to a Russian bot on Twitter? Is it a real person? Or is this information valid? Yeah. Or th those sort of things. So I'm, I'm wondering how they're sort of looking right. at that. And, and you're right. Listen, you know, the, 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 some of the quote-unquote shadowy, shadowy tactics have, have been exposed. I mean, election interference be, being one of them. Um, that said, our reaction to them, first of all, we haven't connected the dots enough on this, uh, it, we tend to see them in isolation, um, so that the, that the overall strategy remains uh, in the shadows because we haven't acknowledged how those dots are, are connected. You know, and I, and I do think, and a point I make in the book, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is that Americans, both members of the public and even lawmakers and others, talk about or tend to be aware of a couple of the fronts election interference being one of them, cyber warfare, you know, on the, on the Russia side, election interference on the Chinese side, China's enormous success in stealing state secrets via cyber, via cyber warfare, both state and private sector secrets. And one of the chapters in the book is, is about one guy, Stephen Su, a Chinese operative who over the course of four years stole hundreds of gigabytes of data on three of our most advanced military aircraft, the, the F-35, the F-22, and the C-17, um, that's just one guy. And yet there, there are many others, and I, and I speak to the former head of counterintelligence for the FBI, Bob Anderson, who says we're probably aware about, of about 10% of Chinese activity in this space. So they're having enormous effect, you know, without Americans connecting the dots on how broad these attacks are and how they're connected to the other fronts. So um, folks know about the Activity, but do they know that Russia and China have deployed weapons into space as well to uh, undermine American space superiority? Do they know that that is part of a larger picture uh, of an effort to undermine the U.S. on multiple fronts? So, so the, while some of the individual tactics have come out of the shadows, the broader strategy 
has still not been recognized to a degree that, that we need to confront that strategy, right? And, and, and that's why, um, for most of us, it continues to play out in the shadows, and we have to expose it. We have to bring it out of the shadows so that we as a country can fight back. Right, yeah. And your, your last chapter sort of focuses in on these kind of strategies for addressing the shadow war. Um, and, you know, for cyber attacks, you mentioned like in Estonia, they teach computer literacy and cyber hygiene, quote unquote, in schools. <laughs> um, and yeah. and one of your other main points is just sort of heeding the warning signs because both Russia and China, you know, sort of signaled ahead of time that they were going to engage in some of these like pretty egregious activities. And the U.S. either wasn't paying attention or didn't take it seriously or w- w- for whatever reason failed to heed the warning. So can, can you talk a bit more about the sort of the sort of how to deal with it part of this? Yeah. I, you know, I wrote a book 10 years ago about uh, the rise of Islamic extremism in the West. And, I, and at the time, uh, my, my boss, Charlie Gibson, anchor for ABC, read it. And he said, listen, you know, I like your book. The one thing I would like to hear of is what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. So I took that lesson to heart. And I said, when I write my next book, I'm going to make sure that I spend time on on solutions or a way to respond. So what, what I did for this book is I, is I pulled half a dozen really smart people on this. Uh, Jim Clapper, former DNI, Michael Hayden, former CIA and NSA director, uh, John Scarlett, former head of MI6, Ash Carter, former defense secretary, uh, John Hyten, the current head of strategic command, to say, guys, help articulate for me half a dozen steps or more for pushing back. And, and what I found when you speak to them is, is that they start to repeat many of the same things. And, and, and just to crystallize them, uh, a couple of, of the things they keep coming back to. One is know the enemy, right? And that one mistake these officials repeat, and, and they do so self-critically because they were in these positions as China and Russia were ramping up this war and before the U.S. recognized it or did anything about it, was, was know the enemy. Don't persist in this delusion that Russia and China want what we want, because the fact is they don't. They have very different uh, view of the world. They, they look at the international rules-based order as constructed by the U.S. and its allies post-World War II as inherently skewed against them. They, you know, we, we persisted in this delusion that welcome them into these international organizations. They will liberalize. They will play by our rules. Well, in fact, no. They want to break those rules because they, because they see breaking those rules as in their interest. So know the enemy is one. Two, defend yourself better from election infrastructure to uh, private sector intellectual property. Don't get gamed by them. And I'll tell you, in addition to being a reporter, I served as chief of staff of the U.S. ambassador to China. And it amazed me that U.S. companies knew that they were getting robbed blind of their technology. They would report it to the embassy, but they would say, hey, listen, don't complain too loudly because we don't want the Chinese to punish us more and keep us out of this market. You know, it's like the battered wife syndrome, you know, that they knew that they were getting done wrong, but they didn't want to raise their heads above the parapet because they were worried that China would punish them more. So you got to defend yourself better. You have to set clear red lines so that uh, adversaries know that if those red lines are crossed, they will be punished for it. You also have to calibrate the punishment so they actually change behavior. Clearly, the U.S. hasn't figured that out because the punishments aren't deterring the behavior. You know, slapping some sanctions on here and there have not pushed Russia out of the Ukraine, have, have not stopped Russia from interfering in our elections, have not stopped China from expanding territorial 
uh, aggression in the South China Sea, uh, you know, you, you've got to calibrate the penalties so that they actually change behavior. Uh, and then a final thing I'll mention, because there's more in that final chapter, though, is that you need clear and definitive leadership from the, ch- from the top. And when you have a president, listen, say it out loud, who will not identify uh, Russian election interference, not just as a problem, but won't even say that it's happening to the degree that it's happening, you can't defend against it properly or create penalties that change the behavior of property. You need leadership from the top, and, and the country hasn't seen that. To the extent that, that the U.S. is behind or did not kind of you know, wake up to this until recently, or maybe not even now, how much of that is that about 18 years ago, we very dramatically and very quickly shifted our entire intelligence and to a significant degree our military strategy uh, towards terrorism. Um, and yeah. certainly even at the time, there were many people saying, yes, 9-11 was horrifying and you're going to have these these incidents, but none of these are, are existential threats. And, and what about kind of old-fashioned great power competition? How much of it is that, that we've been focusing on something very different for two decades? Well, it, it's true, and you know it's true, because the folks who were in charge at that time, the Clappers, the Haydens, the Carters, uh, John Scarlett, former head of MI6, they cop to it. They say, we, as China and Russia were amping up uh, this shadow war, we focused our resources, our intelligence resources, military, uh, diplomatic resources, we focused them on the war, or the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the wars counter-terror, uh, the war on terror, right? Um, and China and Russia took advantage of that, and it took some time to turn the attention uh, in that direction. And listen, you know, presidents attempted it and then they got pulled back, right? And you remember, you remember the, uh, the rebalancing, right, to Asia under the Obama administration. They tried it, got dragged back. Um, and, you know, the Trump administration has tried to pull back uh, from the region as well, but now is newly intensely focused on Iran. So uh, we, got, we got distracted, right? I mean, for... for for understandable reasons. You, you had uh, 9-11. Uh, the question was, did you overemphasize that threat, which was never existential, uh, when you have two actual existential th- threats in Russia and China that were growing their capabilities, but also their ambitions while we were focused elsewhere? What, what, do, what do you make of, and I find myself thinking this sometimes, that China is China's one issue. China is a, a huge economy it has, you know, been a, a great global power for most of the last couple thousand years. It has all these reasons why, in great power terms, that's a clear competition that we are in with China. How hostile it becomes is, no, is another question. But in a lot of ways, as you said, the, the Russian economy is, I think, now about the size of Italy. Um, I guess outside of, I, I wasn't as clear on, on how their submarine force is different, but their conventional military is not nearly what it was, you know, two or three decades ago. Uh, its economy is almost all uh, ex- based on extractive industries, some metals, stuff like that. It is not a, it is not an advanced economy. We see a lot of you know, oligarchs and billionaires, but that's because, you know, one guy has the aluminum concession, another guy's, you know, got this and that. Why is it not right 
to see Russia in these terms as a problem that we have to manage because they are kind of, you know, kind of tossing out the rule book, as it were, but just qualitatively different as any sort of national rivalry relative to China, that they're just not that big a deal. There are different kinds of threats, and that's why you can comfortably put Russia in the category of declining power and China comfortably in the category of the rising power, but each dangerous in in its own way, because in declining power, seeing its standing fall and and retaining enormous weapons, 7,000 nuclear warheads, right, that truly an existential threat can be very dangerous on the way down. you know, and you're right. Listen, as McCain said, it's a, it's a gas station masquerading as a country, right? We don't buy, you don't have Russian cell phones in your pocket. You don't buy Russian cars. You don't have Russian computers or flat screen TVs. You do have a lot of Chinese stuff like that because because uh, Russia's going in one direction, China in the other direction. But but both of those can be very dangerous threats. Um, Russia wants to, you know, get some shots yep. in on the way down and, and rescue what, what portion of its standing that it can. China is growing as an international force and uh, is truly formidable. That's why when, when, when I ask the folks, okay, Russia and China are the top threats, what's the bigger one? And they'll say short-term, more dangerous, Russia on the way down, China, medium, long-term, more dangerous on the way up. Let me ask you another question that comes up, and particularly when we talk about these various forms of asymmetric conflict, whether it's, uh, you know, stealing of secrets, manipulating elections, all, all these sort of all these sort of things. During the this whole Russia story for us that has been that has unfolded over the last two or three years, one of the things that comes up again and again uh, with with Russian interference, but also these sort of roles that Saudi Arabia has played, Israel being involved, other Gulf states and so forth, is you also seem to have a certain a kind of an oligarchization of a lot of things happening in the international arena. Now, in Russia, clearly one of the ways that Putin operates is to kind of have have friendly oligarchs do things to kind of give some deniability and some distance and everything. Um, but what has come up again and again is you have, and I think about this in the Gulf states, you know, these kind of offers of assistance that were um, offers of assistance to the Trump campaign that were sort of from the Gulf monarchies, sort of from these independent players, people in Israel got involved. Um, how much of how much maybe and maybe this is part of the broader kind of you know global wealth inequality issue how much are these sort of non-state players a factor here where it's not just russia or just china yeah. it's these kind of you know the not to get putting in too political terms but sort of the international you know plutocratic oligarchy doing doing yeah. things that are somewhat on their own account well, the principal adversaries in the shadow war are Russia and China, but they're not the only countries that use shadow war tactics, more traditionally known as hybrid war tactics. There are, when I, whenever I speak to folks in intelligence, they will say Russia and China are interfering in U.S. elections to a great degree, but also North Korea, Iran, they use similar tactics. And on each of these fronts, Iran and North Korea also 
have developed weapons that target U.S. space assets. Not as capable as Russia and China, but they use directed energy weapons, lasers to dazzle satellites, perhaps disable them. Uh, they interfere in elections. Even some of our allies do. Israel uh, being among them, uh, they look to uh, interfere and influence where they can. And, and that's the thing. You know, so some of this is, a, is an expression of asymmetric warfare, that a lot of folks use and we have to be aware of. And, you know, Americans like wars with beginnings and endings, with signings uh, of surrender on the USS Missouri uh, in Tokyo Bay. In this kind of warfare, you don't have that. It's not so, they have silent beginnings uh, and they have permanent outlines. And we have to adjust our strategy to that because Russia and China and others have calculated, okay, we can't beat the U.S. when you know, you have 12 air, aircraft carriers in a, in a naval encounter. But we can beat them if we kind of pick them here and pick them there, death by a thousand cuts. So we have to adjust our, our strategy to that. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to be, I don't know if we die, but we're going to be damaged and injured over time by those thousand cuts. We, we have to adjust to that new kind of warfare. All right. To, to finish up, different kind of question. As we said, you, you are... Uh, on air now on on CNN uh, every or not every day but you know most every day um, you you have a, a a big public presence in addition to your reporting um, we know everything that has happened in the last two years where you know uh, President Trump uses CNN especially CNN the New York Times is kind of you know punching bags and so on and so forth what is the most difficult part of your role in the Trump era when the president and his supporters consistently will take the, you know, top on-air people on the network and attack you guys, uh, you know, for, for his own political whatever. But I would think you can't ignore that. It's got to be in your mind. So what is, tell us about that. What's that, what is that part of the job like? I'll tell you what I do is just do my job. I mean, I, I, you you, you got to ignore it to some degree, and, and that is the direction we get from our bosses at CNN, and they back us. Do it, do the reporting, do the reporting right, and we will and we will back you. I think you, you have to you have to put the blinders on to some degree uh, because you know if part of the intention is to intimidate or undermine, well, you know we're not we're certainly not intimidated. Uh, and the best way to fight the undermining is to do good reporting and get it and get it right. Uh, I'll tell you the way it factors into the shadow war, and I think this is important, is that everything is so politicized. Even Russian election interference in, in a U.S. presidential election is politicized to the point where the president uh, views acknowledging that in, interference as somehow diminishing his victory, so that he won't acknowledge it and and arguably won't confront it to the degree it needs to be confronted. You know, one, as CNN has reported, one cabinet-level meeting in two years on election security. Uh, as you saw reporting in The Times and elsewhere, that Mick Mulvaney tells cabinet secretaries and others, don't bring up election interference with the president because he doesn't want to hear about it. You know, that's a problem if, if a real threat to the U.S. system is so politicized that you can't address it. You know, and of course, you have a portion of the country that doesn't believe that it was that significant because they see it. They see even the facts of that front of the shadow war in political in political terms. That's a that's a problem, you know, because 
the gaming of it has real consequences because it affects how you respond to, to very real threats. Um, and and that's, that's a part of this that is insidious and truly damaging. And I'll tell you, Russia and China are aware of it. And there's a reason why they dive into those wedge issues and try to drive the wedges wider because they see advantage in that, you know. Uh, house divided cannot stand. I, I can say I, the 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 importance of having the president, you know, not want to talk about it, not want to, you know, not want to talk about it inside the government, not want to talk about it publicly. That I mean, absolutely, that's going to have a big effect. But from talking to all of these people in the sort of the national security and intelligence world, are the people one layer down still working on it? Absolutely, and I'll tell you. I spent time in a U.S. nuclear submarine under the Arctic. They are fighting the war in this, these terms. I, I spent time at half a dozen bases in U.S. Space Command. They call themselves space warriors. They are confronting this threat. Men and women in uniform and out of uniform, they're, they're fighting the shadow war. I go to the, NCA, the NSA's NTOC, the operations center, where they respond to these threats, thousands of cyber attacks a day. They're fighting this. U.S. diplomats are fighting the shadow war. And this is the way they speak about it. And they, they don't speak about it in political terms. They speak about it in, in national terms, in patriotic terms. So the difference between the messages and warnings you hear from them and the way it's spoken uh, at the White House is, is, is sharp. Uh, and they're desperate for leadership from the top. And I'll tell you, like I said earlier, one of the, one of the prescriptions for the shadow war uh, that you hear unanimously is you need leadership from the very top on this. You need a whole-of-government response, and that's what's missing at this point, and that's worrisome. Got it. All right, so the book is The Shadow War, Inside Russia's and China's Secret Operations to Defeat America. Jim Shudo, CNN anchor, chief national security correspondent. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Josh, great to, great to be on with you. Uh, you know, we met those 12 years ago, and, and I'm glad we stayed in touch. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. That was fascinating. Uh, I, I really, I really enjoyed that. You know, we, uh, like I said, I, I, I met Jim like a dozen years ago on 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 this panel, and um, he is he he's he's a, you know I don't want to get fanboyish or, or whatever, um, but. I am an admirer of him. He, I think he manages um, on CNN to both, you know, do the sort of the public presentation that an anchor needs to do to have to be that kind of, you know, profile and, and everything, but also to be pretty deep into the into the reporting. Um, let me remind, speaking of reporting, let me remind you, the way we pay for everything TPM does is through memberships. Becoming a member means you get extra stories you write, you get fewer ads on the site, you get to post on our special member forum, The Hive, and you get a bunch of other good stuff, but it also means you support our journalism and support this podcast. We have a special offer for podcast listeners, 20% off a TPM Prime membership. To get that offer, go to talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. That's talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. And also, of course, do not forget that the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week. <laughs>